Uh, and it's good to, uh, to be back with you. It's been a while. Uh, I, was, I, was telling, I was talking to Randy and, and Victor before the service that, um, you know, since the pandemic, now we've been, our church, I um, uh, serve as an elder at Providence Church in Frisco. And we've been back for a while, but this is the first time that I've been to another church since the, you know, the lockdown started uh, with the pandemic. And one of the things that I've really, that the Lord sort of impressed on me is that I think it was easy for us in times past to take for granted just the joy and the privilege and just the necessity of, of coming together as the people of God to, to sing together, to fellowship, to sit under the preaching of God's word, to celebrate the ordinances and the Lord's supper. And, uh, it, it, you know, our hearts are prone to wonder. Uh, but each time that we come together this first day of the week, our hearts are recalibrated toward the truth. And so, um, Man, that's my prayer this morning, that as we dig into God's word, um, that the Holy Spirit would move, open our eyes, and that we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ in the scripture. So if you would turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 110, we're going to get Psalm 110. And this is the word of the Lord. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So I want to open our time as we look at Psalm 110 this morning. I want to give you two quotes and by two men who actually have the, the, the same first name and even the same initials, and they're, but they're separated in history by about 400 years. And the first quote is from John Calvin, and this is what he says, and I believe it's going to be up on the screen. He says, as a shepherd is gentle toward his flock... But fierce and formidable toward wolves and thieves. In like manner, Christ is kind and gentle toward those who commit themselves to his care, while they who willfully and obstinately reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. And now a quote from another John. This one's from Johnny Cash. Yeah. And he, he wrote this. This is from a song that he wrote near his death. This was like early 2000s, 2000s. 2001-2002, but here are the words from Johnny Cash. He says this, There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup? 
or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around. And a little bit later, the refrain of that song is, it's the Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Now, I wanted to bring those two quotes together for you. One is sort of really erudite and sophisticated and theological, and then one is very plain spoken. But they're kind of pointing us to one, uh, I think, essential truth. That is, when we look at Psalm 10, we're reminded of the overall mission of God, and we behold our King, the Christ, the Messiah, we're confronted with the truth that it will be different the next time he comes. And I, I think um, as, we, as we look at Psalm 110, there are some, there's some stronger language here. There's some warnings. We see uh, prophecy of judgment, uh, speaking of the day of his wrath. And at the same time, there may be some stronger language and some tougher things to grasp with. I think for those of us who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, who've confessed Christ as Lord, who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, there's great encouragement and joy and peace found in the fact that our King reigns at the right hand of God. And so, you know, many have called Psalm 110 God's favorite Bible verse. And the reason is because out of all of the passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 110 is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. You know, some have said maybe even up to 27 times, either quoted directly or referenced indirectly. And so that should sort of bring to our attention, knowing that uh, all of God's word is inspired, that it's all God breathed, that the, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament are continually looking back to this psalm and bringing it to bear in the New Testament church, it means that this passage played a significant role in how the apostles and how the New Testament church understood the role of Christ and the mission of God and uh, sort of the, the character of God as it would play out in the reign of Christ. But kind of the first task as we look at this text is like, okay, who's talking, Right. Because it, it, it may seem a little bit confusing initially because you've got two lords mentioned. You've got the author. You've got this lord says to this lord. Um, so we want to understand. So there's at least three individuals right there in, in verse 1. You've got the author. You've got one lord speaking to another lord. But when we look in, uh, in the actual Hebrew language, there are actually two different words used for lord there. As the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, the first one in all caps, is Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant name of God. And said to my Lord, the second Lord is Adonai. And Adonai can, can mean a, a master, a king, a superior person. But it's also used in the Old Testament as a divine name of God as well. For instance, in Psalm 114.7, this is what the author writes. It says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. That Lord there is Adonai. And then the second line is, at the presence of the God of Jacob. The psalmist would use that type of repetition a lot. They would say two lines, essentially uh, communicating the same truth. And what you see here is that Adonai, at the presence of the Lord, is equated with the God of Jacob. But the good news for us is we're not left to guess at who these... uh, individuals are because we can go to the greatest commentator ever on the old in the on the old testament which is jesus himself and so in mark chapter 12 jesus quotes 
from Psalm 110 and gives us an authoritative understanding of what is being said and who is speaking. And so Mark 12, 35 through 37, it says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? He says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus said, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the crowd listened to him with delight. And so we get some things cleared up really quickly. The author of the psalm is David. And he, he is speaking by the Holy Spirit. This is divine revelation. And it is the Father speaking to the Messiah. And, and what Jesus is doing in this confrontation that he's having with the religious leaders is he's showing them from the Old Testament that, that the Messiah to come, right, was going to be more than just a human ancestor or descendant, I'm sorry, of King David. He was going to be more than just a human king that would sit on a physical throne of David and Israel. He was pointing to his own divinity, And so he's saying, why do you call him? Yes, he's the son of David, but David himself calls him Lord. And I think like it's important to kind of stop just right there and think about the ramifications right there for the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Like there are historical uh, false teachings about the Godhead that say that that Jesus is either a created being or that Jesus is an archangel or that Jesus was simply a man. Right. But here we see. The father speaking to the son and and some would even say that, you know, Jesus, his life didn't even begin until Bethlehem. But we see that's not the case. We see that David overhears this divine conversation that there is the Messiah, Jesus, the son of God in the presence of the father from all eternity. That's why John would write in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Amen. That's why Jesus could pray in John 17 and say, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so we see this just amazing revelation. And, and Jesus would even go further in Revelation twenty two sixteen and just make this crystal clear when he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And so I, I think really you see four individuals identified just in verse one that David, the author speaking by the power and person of the Holy Spirit over here is a conversation between the father and the son. And so that kind of sets the stage for how we interpret and how we unpack this psalm. And uh, it's really amazing when we think about it, that the Lord would reveal this to us. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this text. He says, uh, how condescending on Jehovah's part, to permit a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his secret converse with his co-equal son. How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the son, herein made public for the refreshing of his people. It's just an amazing revelation that we have in Scripture. And so I want to unpack... Uh, Well, the title of the sermon is Behold Our God, Triumphant and Merciful. And I want to just, in the next few moments, just unpack four things uh, that we behold about our king in this passage. Number one is the king shall have dominion. Number two, the king shall gather his people. 
Number three, the king shall judge the nations. And then finally, the king shall be a priest. So look again at verses one and two. The first point, the king shall have dominion. Verse one and two, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. So this phrase at the right hand or, or seated at the right hand, it, it occurs over a hundred times in the Bible. And what it, it essentially points to is that at the right hand is a place of power, of sovereignty, of strength, uh, of dignity. It's a place of authority. You kind of see this even in Mark chapter 10 when uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, go to Jesus kind of aside from the other disciples and they sort of ask him, will you let us sit at your right hand and at your left hand in eternity? In Mark uh, 10.35 it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's kind of bold, first of all, right? Just going up to Jesus. We want you to do whatever we say, Jesus. And he says, and they, and, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And the, and the scripture says later on that the other disciples were upset about this. They were indignant. Why? Because they understood what they were asking. They were asking for a place of prominence and authority. That's what it means to be at the right hand. So we see in this passage that the Messiah, the king, will be at the right hand of the father and he will rule and reign in the midst of his enemies. And it's important for us to see when we get into the, as we look into the New Testament, that this is not something that they were waiting to happen, but this is something that the apostles recognize as a full and present reality. That Jesus had ascended, that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God. We see this even in Acts chapter 2. Right. So think about this, that Jesus has died on the cross. He's, he was buried. He rose again the third day. OK, he sends his disciples to Jerusalem to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit so they can go on mission. And Peter, in that inaugural sermon, so the Holy Spirit falls, Peter stands up in Jerusalem, begins to preach the gospel. This is sort of like the inaugural New Testament sermon empowered the, the, the New Testament, the birth of the New Testament church. And in that sermon, what does Peter quote? Psalm 110. He goes back again to Psalm 110. Listen to the words of Peter. He says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted, here it is, at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. That's Acts chapter 2. So understand, like for the apostles, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, this was like a great validation day for them, right? Jesus had told them that he was going away. He told them to go wait in Jerusalem, and he told them he was going to send the comforter. He was going to send the helper. He was going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And when that happened, they would know that Jesus had ascended and was at the right hand of God. So as the Holy Spirit is poured out that day, they are ready to go. 
because they realized that what Jesus had told them is true because he's ascended to the father. He has now poured out the power of the Holy Spirit. And then not only do they preach about it here, but as we move on through the book of Acts in Acts chapter seven, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen actually gets to see it with his own eyes. So before he is about to die, before he is martyred because of his good testimony, hear the words of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But it says, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They preached it. Stephen saw it. And what's amazing is as you go through the New Testament and you then get to the epistles of Paul, Paul's going to tell us not only should we know about this, but this is something that we should meditate on. This is something that we should set our minds on, that it has practical implication for how we grow in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now think about the irony of that statement. Who was there when Stephen was martyred? Yeah. Saul of Tarsus, right? It says that he approved of the execution. He, it says that he held the garments of those who were stoning Stephen to death. So Saul goes from wanting to kill Stephen for proclaiming this truth. Then in Colossians, he's been transformed because he's had an encounter with the risen Christ. And he says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because it has practical implications. Later on in in that chapter in Colossians 3, he's going to say, you set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because that is how you begin to put off the things of the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it had practical implications. It ties it to putting to death the deeds of the sinful nature and, and putting on our clothing ourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I kind of want to stop right there and say, okay, you, that's a theological truth. I mean, that's okay. Jesus has ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But what does that really mean for us what's the practical implication of that this call to look up and i think if we're being honest right and i don't mean the sanitized filtered social media version of ourselves i mean honest then when we're looking down when we're looking here there's not always a lot of good reason for rejoicing We see our own struggles and sin. When we are looking inwardly, we see our own failures, sinful tendencies. We're convicted once again because we treat our spouse harshly. Or maybe we cringe 
at the behavior of our own kids because it's like looking in a mirror, right? Or maybe, man, maybe it's just with dealing with the reality that we, we're not where we thought we would be, right? Or maybe we didn't achieve what we thought was going to be the American dream for us. Or maybe it's the other flip side of that. Maybe you did all that you set out to achieve only to find out that it's sort of hollow and empty and there's not ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction in it. Or man, when we see real tragedy, when we go through 18 months of a, of a pandemic and we see those that we love die, sickness and suffering and death. And man, I think about my own like over the last couple of years in our own family, we have walked through some difficult times. And in looking at the situation in those times, there hasn't been a lot of reason for rejoicing. When I was with my, my wife and, and her cousin at, uh, at the funeral of his six-year-old daughter who died a week before she turned seven as she lost her battle to cancer. Over the last few years, we've also... Uh, a very close cousin of my wife, loved in the family, took her own life. And I have never seen deep darkness. She left behind two young kids. And, and seen what her parents and her brothers and sisters have walked through. There's a deep kind of darkness. But the answer isn't just to ignore it like it doesn't exist. It's not just to look away. What the Bible is calling us to do is to look up so we see the whole picture. Not just to compartmentalize and act like these dark things don't exist, but look up and realize that, man, even in the midst of this, Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. And he's coming again. Man, this is why, this is why the prosperity gospel is so weak. Because it has nothing to offer us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Like, we're just going to be blessed and everything is going to be perfect. That's so empty. When Jesus told us that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will walk through persecution. We look at the lives of the apostles themselves. Most of them martyred some exile, Right? It's just interesting that smooth sailing in life is kind of the exception, isn't it? When everything's great, like that's sort of the exception, not the rule. But like, how can this help with something as final as death, though? Well, the good news for us is we look to the scripture that all of those enemies that are being placed under the feet of Christ, death is on that list. Amen. Here, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25, it says, Paul writes, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And here's that reference to Psalm 110 again. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Even in something as dark and in what seems as final to us as death, Jesus at the right hand of the Father speaks to that because even death itself will be defeated. So Christ has ascended. He's at the right hand of God. And Jesus is and shall reign in the midst of his enemies. His scepter, the gospel, shall be sent forth from Zion. 
and there's sort of a, there's like an already but not yet tension, right? Because not all of this has unfolded. A lot of it has, but not all of it has. We still see, as we read Psalm 110, there's still some things to come. And one that is happening now is that he's gathering a people. His army is gathering. Read, look at verse 3. This next point, the king shall gather his people. Verse 3. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. He says, your people. So the reign of Christ and the subjugation of his enemies will include his people. And another way that it can be actually translated is on the day of his power, he will command his troops. And listen to the description of his people. He says they will be in holy garments. It's sort of reminiscent of that picture that we see in Revelation of those whose robes have been washed white by the blood of the Lamb. There's this, this, uh, this word here, the dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, it's sort of this picture of youth and strength and vitality. You think of like the old hymn, Never Grow Old, in a land where it will never grow old. I can say now, now entered into my 40s, I know that <laughs> decay is a real thing. Like I'm slowing down, metabolism slowing down. But I look forward to the day, as this scripture says, that the dew and strength and vitality will be ours. And there's this contrast in his people versus in verse 3, and then the nations are those who reject his authority in verses 5 through 7, right? And it's hard to sort of come away with anything other than this is like a clear contrast. There's his people, and there's those who reject the authority and the kingship of Christ that will face his judgment. It's sort of a black and white, two different groups. And man, in our culture today, there is nothing that's more ridiculed, that's, that, that's more mocked than a statement of certitude or, or a statement of objective truth like this. But I don't know about you, but I want to be in that first group, amen? I want to be part of his people. The, the, old, the old song, when the saints go marching in, oh Lord, I want to be part of that number. I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in, right? But the amazing thing to see here that I want you to see is his victory is our victory. His reign, we get to take place in his reign. In fact, Ephesians would tell us that we've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That is amazing that we get to be a part of the mission of God. His reign will be our reign. We see this in this great picture in Revelation 5. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And listen, And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. So we see the king shall have dominion. The king shall 
is gathering his people. And look, that's, you know, Pastor Mike in, in his message, he was talking about going out this week and praying for those who don't know Christ. Like that's part of that mission of gathering God's people. The scepter that many have, have, have interpreted the scepter that he sends out to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You've been given the gospel. You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to go out and to make disciples. Amen. To be part of this gathering of God's people. Next point, the king shall judge the nations. This is verses five through seven. It says the Lord is at your right hand. And I know we skipped verse four, by the way, we're going to come back to verse four for the last point. Verse 5 through 7, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. When we look at the character of God throughout the scriptures, we know that God is a God of love and of mercy, and of grace. But when we see the whole counsel of God, it's also important to realize that He is a God also of wrath and judgment and righteousness and holiness. Right? And you see that picture no more clearly than in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That substitutionary atonement, right? Here is Jesus dying on our behalf. That great transaction is taking place. Our sins are being placed on Christ. While his perfect obedience to the law throughout his entire life is then transferred to us. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no greater expression of love in this than one would lay down his life for his friends. But at the same time, you also see the fierceness of the righteousness of God against sin. And we, we, you know, we sing the song, and on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So we see, when we see the full counsel of God, that he is a God of love and mercy and justice, but he's also holy. Amen? And we, we don't have the right to invent our own Jesus. Jesus said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of, his, out of his body will flow rivers of living water. You know, Jesus would say, you search the scriptures, for them think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. And, you know, we're, we're in a time now where a lot, I see this a lot on social media, where we have people, they're called deconstructing their faith. You know, prominent evangelical leaders, maybe Christian uh, musical artists, they come out and they're sort of proclaiming, oh, I'm stepping away, I, I was wrong, I'm stepping away, I'm giving up the faith, I'm turning away from Christ. And generally what's sort of at the center of most of these stories, somewhere in those deconstruction stories, is they have an objection to God's sovereign authority to set the boundaries for human life. Somewhere, whether it's something that's in uh, sexual ethics or, or maybe it's the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, but somewhere the objection is that against God having the authority 
to tell us and to proclaim to us what is right, what is holy, what is good, what is right and wrong. You know, but ultimately, though, those same individuals a lot of times would then turn around, though, and make a moral claim about the church and say the church is wrong or the historical Orthodox church is wrong because they're too judgmental and they're too intolerant. So it's not that they don't believe in a right and wrong. They just object to God being the one who sets the rules. John Piper talked about this in his book, Desiring Love, is like, we can, we can proclaim that there's, you know, everything's relative. There is nothing that's objectively right. There's nothing that's objectively wrong until someone wrongs us. Then we want justice. Then we cry out for justice, right? And ultimately, wrath is required for true love. Man, I think about it like, what kind of parent would you be if someone someone did something horrible to your children and you were indifferent about it? No. That, like, when someone goes after your kids, that's a next level of wrath, right? For the father to be indifferent about injustice and unrighteousness and evil. It means that he ultimately would not be a God of true love. He is jealous for his people. And we kind of see this as well in Revelation chapter 6. That let's, there's this verses 9 and 10. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, don't hear me. I want you to hear me right. I'm not talking about personal revenge, right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not about a personal revenge here, but, but, but giving that authority to God who is the righteous judge. And he will judge the nations. That those from our perspective today, those from a human perspective that are untouchable elites, ruling class, those with governments and power in the armies, those who are rebelled uh, against the authority and the claims of Christ, they will not stand a chance against the wrath of the Lamb in that day. In fact, it will be a quick work. We, read, we sort of see that in verse 7 when it says, He will drink by the brook, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And the, the idea here, drinking by the brook by the way, is like he's not stopping. Uh, there's, there's no siege, there's no slow buildup of, tr- of troops that's required. He's on a mission, he's going to judge, he drinks by the brook on the way and lifts up his head. That it will be a quick work. And we see that even in 1 Corinthians 15, right? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. So the, the king will have dominion. The king is gathering the people. The king will judge the nations. And then finally, would you see this? In verse 4, the king shall be a priest. So like in the midst of this psalm, it, it, might, it might almost seems like it's out of place a little bit, right? It's like, well, he's reigning at the right hand of God, so he'll have dominion. He's gathering an army. He's gathering a people. And one day he's coming in judgment, but like right in the middle of this psalm, there's this kind of strange statement about he's also a priest. 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now, and I don't have like enough time to sort of like go all into who Melchizedek was, but I, I just want to say this, that ultimately what's being uh, communicated here, and this is really unpacked in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. Now, a king rules his people. A prophet speaks truth to his people. A priest intercedes for his people. A priest uh, deals gently with his people. So, man, make no mistake. We look at this psalm and we see, it, like, in its prophetic power, it describes what has been, what's coming, that Christ will be triumphant, but also in the middle of this, behold the, the hope of the gospel and the mercy and grace of God. That he, the one king who reigns with authority, the one king who's at the right hand of God, who's coming to judge the nations, who's coming to bring wrath upon the earth, is also interceding for us and is our great high priest. He actually laid down his life for his people. And I think we see this most clearly in in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, in, in Hebrews 10, 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 again. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. Listen to verse 14. For by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That one of the reasons Christ sat down is because the work was finished. Because before Christ came, all other human priesthoods were temporary. They were incomplete for a few different reasons. One is that they died, right? The priests were human and they died. So another would have to take their place and continually offer sacrifices for sins. The other reason is because they were sinners themselves. And so they would have to go and offer sacrifices for their own sins as well. And then finally, because the sacrifices were insufficient. If they had been sufficient, that they would not have to be offered year after year after year. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that Christ offers a single offering for all time and then sits down at the right hand of God. That we have hope and peace because of his character because he is good and merciful, that he is a high priest and he intercedes for us. I, it's like that, you know, First John 2, 1 says, I write this, dear children, so you will not sin. But if any of you does sin, and I'm like, that's me right there. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. And I think the NIV translates it literally. We have one who speaks in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so I want to I want to close. If you want to, if you will turn there, turn to Romans chapter eight. I want to close with this passage. I don't know how long Pastor Mike usually preaches, but <laughs> nobody's complaining. So I guess nobody's walked out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man 
But hear, hear, hear this last verse, okay? And this points to the hope of, of the gospel that we see in verse 4. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Actually, you know what? We'll read through the rest. Let's just read the rest of the chapter. Let's just do that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's like a rhetorical question in verse 34. Who can condemn us if we've put our faith in Christ? If we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, who can condemn us? Who can lay a charge against God's elect? And he answers the question. He says, it is Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, the Father, right, has committed all judgment to the Son. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said, I have all all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's Christ who's at the right hand of God. It's Christ who is reigning as all his enemies are being put under his feet. It's Christ who is coming to execute judgment among the nations. The only one who has the authority to condemn us is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The only one who has the authority to judge is interceding. Now think about that. Man, not, not on your best day, on your worst day. Hear me. On your worst day. When you committed that sin that you cannot believe that you've done again. When you, when, when, you, when you lost your temper with your kids or with your spouse, right? When you're, when you're dejected and, de- and, and oppressed and depressed. On your worst day, in the midst of your sin as a child of God, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. That's the hope of the gospel. That it's not about us, it's not about our ability, but that Jesus is a perfect Savior. And when we begin there, when we take our security by looking at Christ, then we go on to do the good works that he has called us. In fact, he's predestined us to do. The Bible says that there were, in Ephesians, there were good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. But what I want to tell you is, man, when we go out, and we walk and we and we should have a desire because of this truth to grow in sanctification, to grow in holiness, to grow in our relationship with God. But we do it not to earn his approval. We do it because we have it and because Jesus, our great high priest, our king is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. And for this great truth that that you have defeated death and hell and the grave and and sin.
that, it, that if we, Lord, if I put our faith in you, that, that the Father sees us as righteous in Christ, not because of us, because of what you've done. But Lord, my prayer this morning is, is for, for those here that may be walking in a time of discouragement, spiritual depression. Lord, I pray that they would look up. <laughs> I pray that they would set their hearts on things above, as you've told us to do, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That they would be reminded of your authority, of your kingship. They'd be comforted by your high priestly ministry. Lord, in that that this truth would motivate us to go out. That this message of the gospel is so precious, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us, empower us. We pray for a fresh outpouring, a fresh feeling of your spirit, Lord. That we may go out and be witnesses. That we may go out and make disciples. Lord, I thank you for Lakeway. I thank you for this church, God. I pray that you would continue to grow. I pray that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed with faithfulness. The word of God would continue to be delivered from this pulpit. That week by week, lives and hearts would be changed. Lord, that you would begin to raise the dead spiritually. Lord, if this church would, would see new converts, would see baptisms... Uh, not simply just for growth, but for the glory of God and for the expanding of the kingdom of God. Lord, because just even in this surrounding community, there are those who are walking in darkness. Those that don't know you. And Lord, I just pray for also, I just uh, pray for Pastor Mike and his family. God, would you strengthen him, Lord? Would you continue to anoint him and use his ministry that, that he would continue to preach with faithfulness, God, that you would guide him. I pray for the elders of this church, Lord, that you would unite them together, that there would be great unity in this body. Lord, that the, the elders would, would shepherd well with love and care. God, that they would just have a tenacity to, to, get, to follow you and to be rooted into your word. May the word of God speak to every aspect of the ministry of this church. Lord, I just pray that you would do a mighty work at Lakeway. We love you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Josiah, for that beautiful spirit-led message this morning. It's really awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'd like to remind everybody to be faithful in your times. You can clap. It's okay. <laughs> Be faithful in your tithes, your giving. We have the offering bucket over here if you want to give here. or uh, You can give online. For those of you who are online, you can give through our online website. I did neglect to mention one thing earlier for the Kairos ministry. If you'd like to donate for those meal tickets, there is an online category there to select that. You can do it right online as well. And if I see the donations online, I'll fill out a ticket for you. But don't, don't take that from your tithes. Your tithes are your tithes, okay? So let me close with a blessing. Excuse me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this message you brought today, Lord. We just thank you for your love for us. And it's so awesome just to see this scripture in Psalms 110 and, and how David was given this vision, Lord, of Jesus Christ right by your side. We thank you for all that you do for us. I pray a blessing over everyone here and that they go in peace today. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.